0: Hello, and welcome back to the Physio DC podcast, where we give you PT news and insight into some of the Physio DC shenanigans. Today, we are starting our new podcast series called PT Mythbusters, and today we have with us Josh Ripp. Hello, Josh.
1: Hey, Kira. Glad to be here. I'm really glad to do this podcast. I think it's going to be a lot of fun.
0: I think it should be a lot of fun. We can bust some myths that people have about uh, some basic exercise questions. And we're going to go through a few things. And hopefully we can educate the public a little bit more. So... One of the first things that we're going to discuss is muscle gain. I think sometimes a lot of people, and I'm not going to stereotype, but maybe some meathead jocks at the gym sometimes think that they can gain muscle right away when they just start working out. So Josh, what do you say to this? Can you gain muscle right away when you start an exercise regimen?
1: Very, very minimal muscle gains when you just start. So actually, when you start exercising, say you just go to the gym and you start working out and you haven't worked out for a few years, it takes about 8 weeks before your muscles actually start reacting to that stimulus and building muscle upon itself. Now, that being said, you usually see huge gains in strength in those first 8 weeks. You'll see more strength gains when you're not building muscle versus when you actually build it. That's because you actually have neuromuscular synchronization so every muscle has a nerve that tells it what to do the brain tells the nerve the nerve sends the message down over to the muscle saying when to contract how strong to contract how frequent to contract and that's how we exercise our body that synchronizes so much in the first eight weeks you see this huge strength gain and then you typically see yourself tailor off a little bit right around the eight-week mark that eight-week mark is actually when the muscle starts to build upon itself and you make those strength gains due to muscles
0: so in that first eight-week time period, are you basically saying that we have dumb muscles and we're kind of just re-educating how our system works in those first few weeks? I'd probably
1: say a little nicer than dumb muscles, <laughs> but I think I get your point. Yeah. No, it is It is essentially what you said with dumb muscles. Our muscles are just not sure what to do at that point. And as they, they learn this, you become coordinated. It's just like picking up a sport. Swinging a baseball bat, swinging a tennis rack. you got to learn the motion. Your muscles need to learn the motions of lifting, of lifting either body weight or actual free weights in the gym. And as they gain that knowledge, then they can finally start gaining strength, gaining muscle mass a few weeks down the road, right around that eight-week mark.
0: Yeah, and you can usually pretty easily in a short-term way see this if you are at the gym working out, lifting weights. You may notice, say you're doing like a, a lat pull-down exercise, your first set may be trash. You'll feel tired. You'll feel weak. Give yourself a little break after that set, and usually by the second set, it usually feels a little bit easier, and it's not because you've gotten stronger. It's just because you're getting a better signal from your nerves set. Correct? Yeah,
1: and related to PT, I've seen in, the, in our PT clinic before, we introduce a new exercise to a patient, and they really struggle the, fo- the first few sets, mm-hmm. and then the last couple of sets, they pick it up and they do better. Now, you'd think they would do worse because they come more fatigued. Right. They just learn how to do it. The brain and the muscles are starting to coordinate, and they figure it out. Are their muscles performing better due to the, the strength gains? No. They can gain strength. They just have learned how to do
0: it. Right. Well, I think that we have busted that first myth of gaining muscle right away. Mm-hmm. So for, for you guys that want a little follow-up, know that you cannot gain muscle right away when you're starting an exercise regimen. It is going to technically take at least eight weeks for that to start to happen.
1: It's the sad truth.
0: Yes. <laughs> now, sticking along the lines with muscle strengthening, let's talk about lactic acid buildup. What is lactic acid buildup?
1: Uh, It's a bad stigma, that's what it is. You you don't really build up lactic acid unless you do really long, intense exercise. So, Mm -hmm. your body naturally produces lactic acid. And more specifically, lactic acid is also a wrong term. It produces lactate. Right. Glycogen will actually break down into lactate. And your body can actually send that through the Krebs cycle, which, I won't go too in depth on that. It's very physiological. It's very but,
0: nerdy. Yeah.
1: But then you can use that lactate for more so energy in prolonged races, like a marathon. Now, for short duration exercise. If you're doing pull-ups and you start to feel the burn of the muscle, I hear it very often, and Kira, you can probably hear this too. Ooh man, I'm starting to feel that lactic acid.
0: Right. What is that that people are feeling?
1: So it's actually the uh, it's hydrogen ions. Due to ATP breakdown. So what is ATP? It's just essentially an energy supplement in your body. We naturally create it, and that's what gives the muscles energy that we need. You break it down, it sends a burst of energy to the muscle, and the muscle can contract. So ATP is needed for every muscle contraction. Now, every time the ATP breaks down, gives that muscle the energy, and the hydrogen ion splits off. And for those who remember their middle school or high school chemistry, hydrogen ions are acidic. They decrease your pH. So all these start building up in your muscles and in your body. And with that acidity, the muscles start to burn because it's just turned into this big acid muscle. Think of it like that more so.
0: Right. So are there ways that people can help decrease that sensation of that quote, unquote, I was going to do air quotes, but I realized nobody could see me. (laughs) She (laughs) did air quotes here. I I did. I just about did air quotes. Um, My air quote, lactic acid buildup, are there ways that people can help to relieve some of what they think is, you know, that sensation?
1: Initially, probably not. It's going to take more strength. As you get stronger, it just becomes easier to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: you're still breaking down ATP. You're still bringing in the hydrogen ions every time an ATP is broken down. Now your body will get better at what we call buffering it with time. You can buffer it with more a basic element in your body. Mm-hmm. So, as your body learns to buffer these and more something to neutralize the acidity in your muscles, then that's going to help in the long run. Yeah. But again, something like we talked about the muscles, that takes time for your muscles to learn how to buffer all the hydrogen ions now or accumulate in the muscles.
0: Everything takes time, people. All right. So, speaking of things that take time, let's talk about stretching. I always have patients that come in and they talk about how they're tight. And one thing I ask them is, do you stretch? And they're like, yeah, you know, every once in a while, I'll do a series of a couple of stretches. Okay, how long do you hold those stretches for? I don't know, five or 10 seconds. Is this adequate, Josh, five or 10 second stretches?
1: Absolutely not. Okay.
0: So for everybody listening, stretching for five or 10 seconds is not adequate to create really any change. So you got to do a little bit longer. How long do you hold your stretches for Josh?
1: You got to hold it for at least 35 seconds. Mm -hmm. That's what research shows. And actually for those who are above about seven years old, research shows you have to hold for at least 45 seconds. Right. So why is that, Kira?
0: Well, you are generally not going to make any change within the muscle tendon unit with a short duration stretch there isn't going to be a whole lot of change in the tendon the only thing that you might get out of a short duration stretch or even something like a ballistic stretch is really just an increased tolerance for the stretch sensation mm-hmm. or the quote-unquote pain that people Make feel with stretching which by the way stretching should not be painful it should feel it should stretchy not, no not painful if you are going into a point of pain you are going too far
1: damaging the muscle tendon
0: fibers exactly you should feel elongation and i think that people need to know this
1: <laughs> no, they, as long as they you know just stretch it for really painful 10 seconds and ah it's longer right
0: yeah no you, trust me you'll be able to hold you'll want to hold your stretches for a longer period of time if you are not putting yourself in pain.
1: Yeah. Um, a good example I found with stretching is like a rubber band. So. 30 seconds is when you break from the elastic to the plastic part. Now, mm-hmm. what's that mean? So elastic, think of a rubber band. You pull it, and then you let go, and it goes right back to its normal shape, what it was. Yep. So holding for less than 30 seconds still has that elastic aspect to it. It's going to go back.
0: Yeah, you're going to get a little recoil.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, when you hold for longer than 30 seconds, that's when plasticity starts to kick in. It actually begins to lengthen, such as when you overstretch that rubber band, you let it go. It doesn't come back to that normal size. It's a little bit looser. Now, you're ruining into perfectly good rubber band, but at least your muscles are a little bit. Longer.
0: <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But we don't want to, we don't want a bad rubber band always, <laughs> but we do want nice longer muscles. Not always though. Like, would you say that flexibility is like being more flexible is better than not being flexible? What, how do you feel about that? Cause I have my own opinions based on what I like to do for fun. <laughs> uh,
1: that, that's a, a loaded question because that really depends on the joint, the muscle, and the athlete, and what the demands of that athlete, or just a, you know, in our case, a patient needs. How much mobility do they need? Someone who's a gymnast or dancer, they're going to need a lot of mobility. Someone like a high-velocity athlete, like a sprinter, too much muscle length actually is going to hinder their abilities to be explosive, and those muscles explode. So I do think having not enough mobility is dangerous. As well as being hypermobile, though, too, for people. Right. Sometimes that puts too much laxity in the joints.
0: Yes, I do believe that there's for sure a, a slippery slope with this one, there's a lot of relativity. Um, because it is 100% based on what your activity is. There are some studies that show, some people think that like, if you're more flexible, that you will be weaker. There are a good amount of studies that are disproving that, and what they're showing is you're not necessarily weaker. The muscle's not weaker, but that it's, it has the same amount of strength, but in a different range of motion, mm-hmm. um, which is why you're you know, your runner or your basketball player may almost seem weaker if they're too flexible. And it's because their strength is going to be at a different different range in their joint. Whereas dancers, you know, ballet dancers, there's no, you can't say that they're not strong. They're very strong individuals, but they're very flexible and their strength comes in ranges of motion that most people can't even achieve. I think for the, the lay person, I personally think good, for instance, hamstring length should be somewhere around 90 degrees. I personally think as a PT, everybody should be able to long sit. And that's just sitting on the floor with your legs straight out in front of you being able to keep your back eh, somewhat neutral. Maybe not perfect, but somewhat. I think that that's a reasonable amount of basic hamstring length. What do you think? What's your opinion on that?
1: I think it's... I usually shoot for 80 degrees, especially on males. It's tough to find a male who's got that 90 degree. Mm -hmm. It's just genetically men are not as flexible as females so do i have nine degrees not even close very hypocritical (laughs) i'm lucky if i can get to 70 degrees so for me i usually shoot for 80 i find that pretty functional is 90 optimal absolutely 90 is better than 80 but i know for for pt aspects you could get by with eight degrees live your life normally for the most part yeah not really be limited in anything
0: yeah and again with us because we're pts we're just looking for the best functional mm-hmm. outcome for a person. So being right. able to long sit, 80 degrees is fine. You know your back is going to curve a little bit under you, and that's fine. You know you're going to be able to you're going to be able to sit and move. So yeah, that's where right. that's where we are on flexibility. Anything else? Yeah, no. I
1: was I was reading some articles and some research, and I always like to relate to real life. And they said how stretching before sprint races is. And now, that if you do watch, you watch the Olympics, you watch any racing, you don't typically see them do static stretching. They don't just you know, bend over, touch their toes, hold for 30 seconds before a 100 meter sprint. Right. Actually, because uh, as said before, that may decrease their sprint times. hmm. They'll typically stick to dynamic warm-ups, and then they'll stretch after the race. Then they'll try to get that motion. So dynamic warm-ups are the way to go for short, explosive activities. Sprinting, football, basketball, things like that. While static stretching, reaching, and holding... That's going to be good for the things that you need a lot of motion on or endurance types of exercises.
0: Yeah, I think I think dynamic stretching or dynamic warm ups are pretty much good for any population that's doing any type of activity or sport. Like in one of the blogs that I wrote on the Physio DC website about uh, how dancers stretch, it had been my pet peeve for so long that I would go to the dance studio and I would see girls sitting on the floor in their straddle splits, just leaning over and just hanging out there texting, doing whatever they were doing but just sitting in a split for like 10 minutes before class that is not preparing your muscles Mm -hmm. for class at all (laughs) dynamic
1: warm-ups are the most important part of the warm-up they're more than just a stack holding stretching dynamic it's functional you do warm-up you get the body ready to prepare yourself for what you really need to do at game time or dance speed exactly and I think we haven't talked really much about ballistic stretching
0: no yeah let's talk about ballistic stretching so what is ballistic stretching it's kind of Also has a stigma uh, as something being dangerous. How do you feel about ballistic stretching?
1: I do not like ballistic
0: stretching. Neither do I. Uh, So what is
1: ballistic stretching, Scaret, to help
0: them know? So ballistic stretching is something that you might see where you're stretching a muscle. The description's kind of in the name. It's ballistic. So you might bend over and touch your toes, but then you might bounce.
1: Bouncing's a big one.
0: In that. Position and that can be rather dangerous.
1: Absolutely. So with the bouncing, if you look at a muscle and you were to cut a muscle open and fold it over, you it's made up of fibers. The fibers on the inside have these muscle spindles that respond to these bouncing activities, the intrafusal sp- spindles. And with that, when they have a quick force like that, a lot of times they will contract. So if they're contracting and then you're trying to lengthen those at the same time, those are opposite movements. That's how damage to the muscle is going to happen.
0: Yep. And again, another study that I looked at in regards to ballistic stretching and Sprinter has showed that there was the tiniest amount of, I guess, subjective change in range of motion where they gained a little bit of increased range of motion from doing ballistic stretching. But when they actually looked at the muscle tissue and the muscle tendon unit, there was no change there. So once again, this is just another case of the subject's Getting used to the feeling of stretching. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to increase their range of motion a little bit, but at what cost?
1: Yeah, just more stretch tolerance with a, a huge risk of damaging some muscle fibers.
0: Yeah. So, let us talk about, since we're on the athlete situation, let's talk about high-altitude training.
1: Oh, I love this one.
0: Or hypoxic training. This
1: is such a common (laughs) thing.
0: So, everybody probably knows about, you know, the Olympic Training Center. Where is that, Denver? No, I'm not entirely
1: sure. I'm not sure either. I know the Winter Olympics. A lot of them train in Lake Tahoe, California. So,
0: yeah, there are Olympic Training Centers that are in places that are at high-altitude because the belief is that you know, if the air is thinner or the altitude's higher, you are going to be working your body so much harder and you're going to become a better athlete for it. So yeah.
1: I think that the big one you just said was the air is thinner. That's the, the myth number one. Right. Number, no, no, the big one. <laughs> yeah. The air is not thinner. There's not less oxygen in the air. That's the biggest common things I hear. Like, oh, I'm out of breath. is thin air. There's just not so much oxygen in there. The air is the same thickness everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As weird as that sounds, and there's just as much oxygen in the air as, uh, you know, on top of a mountain at the beach. It's partial pressure, so it's the pressure of the air. What that means is, is when you breathe in, when you inhale, you, your chest cavity, your chest opens up, creating a vacuum. And that's what draws all the air into your lungs. At higher altitudes, the air is not as built upon each other. Think of it like blankets. Mm -hmm. If you have 10 blankets on yourself, that's going to be all the pressure from all those blankets. Now, when you're at sea level, it's like having those 10 blankets. All the air... From above you, from the atmosphere down to the sea level, is putting pressure on the air you're breathing in at that level, sucking it into your lungs. When you're higher up, there's not as much pressure in the air. The air doesn't, essentially, it's not getting pushed down by all of these layers. Right. Air weighs a minimal amount, but it does have weight to it. It right. has mass. Right. So there's just, it's not thinner air. There's just not as much pressure from the air up in that area.
0: All right. And do you think that there are benefits to Exercising at higher altitudes?
1: So, no, but it's a slippery slope. Well, from what I'm read from the newest research is actually more so that training or sorry, living high and training low is actually optimal. Now, the logistics of that are very hard. There's not very mountains next to a whole lot of sea level places. Mm -hmm. Maybe somewhere like LA, but those mountains aren't entirely huge. What that means is if you can actually live at a place of high altitude and just get your body accumulated to that, and then you train, you do your practicing, your running, your races at sea level where there's more of that partial pressure, you can breathe easier. And that's actually the ideal thing, but actually training at high altitudes hasn't really shown much of a significant difference than just training at normal altitudes.
0: Right. The last study that I read about this said that there is absolutely little to no change for sprinters that in this study that that did their sprints with high altitude conditions versus sea level altitude conditions or hypoxic versus normoxic sprints. The only difference was that if the sprinter believed that they were going to have this great increase in Mm -hmm. in athletic ability that they did a little bit better the so famous that, the famous placebo famous placebo effect it it's strong
1: that sugar pill will get you
0: it don't get you it's strong but hey when it when it works in favor yeah <laughs> then that it
1: definitely does yeah oh uh, you know what what happens at higher levels. Of what changes come from the body? I think that's something people don't really think about or realize.
0: You should talk on it.
1: So initially, right away, what happens when you're at high altitudes is you start breathing quicker and your heart starts pumping faster. Right. So as uh, you can't have as much oxygen drawn into the lungs because of that partial pressure, what your body does it automatically kicks in by breathing faster. And that's also going to go hand in hand with your heart being a little quicker. So if you uh, if you took your pulse and your respiratory rate at you know, Miami Beach and then flew To Denver, those would increase right away, just over you know the the flight, and it's not that anything changed in your body. You know, it wasn't training was introduced. It was just that your body's adapting to that, and that usually is going to stick around for I think about two weeks before you start to see your respiratory rate and your heart rate return to those normal levels, and that's what we call (laughs) the. into to the, right. the altitude
0: so speaking of runners i think the last topic that we are going to talk about today is running leading to arthritis lower extremity arthritis I think a lot of the times I've got some patients that say, oh, you know, I used to run, but now I'm, I'm getting older. I'm a little nervous that it might be a cause of arthritis down the road. What do you say to that?
1: No, no proof.
0: Yeah, there's no proof. No. There's actually a lot of studies that saying that running may actually help to prevent joint damage. Yeah,
1: absolutely, because bones, just like muscles, respond to stimuli that's more than what they experience on a normal basis, more than just laying down, so if... you you go and do bicep curls, you say you're going to get bigger biceps. So if you go and you run and you have this forceful impact through your legs, you know, that impact travels up your leg bones. Mm -hmm. So that can actually, the stimulus to those bones can actually strengthen the bones, not weaken them.
0: Yeah, that's definitely going to strengthen the bones. And then even just from a joint perspective on that, joint compression, whether it is because of A compressive force like standing or hopping or if it's just the positioning of the joint the closed packed position of the joint which is where you're getting the most compression of one bone on another it actually helps to increase your joint fluid and Mm -hmm. help it kind of regenerate in a way.
1: Joints are meant to move, they like to move.
0: They are meant to move so you know a lot of people don't necessarily, they they worry but if you have always been a runner and you are running with a good form where you're not necessarily pounding on your joints like obviously if you're pounding hard if you're a hard runner you know maybe it's not great long term but if you're an efficient runner you know at least as far as the journal of american osteopathic association they they say running is good for your joints
1: yeah run away run force run you didn't have any knee arthritis from i remember in force come.
0: no <laughs> No, I don't remember Forrest from having any knee arthritis, and he ran a lot. He
1: did. Ran for, what, three years?
0: (laughs) Anything else to say regarding running leading to lower extremity No, I think it's just,
1: yeah, busted that myth. Uh, No, yeah, you can run as much as you want. You're not going to develop knee arthritis.
0: All right. So I think the topics that we had for today, all the myths have been busted.
1: Exactly.
0: Uh, we hope to bring you a few more MythBuster episodes. Uh, so, you know, Josh and myself and any other the providers at Physio DC, we're going to come up with some fun topics to discuss and hopefully educate you all a little bit more on some of these things that are just myths old wives tales, misinformation, false news, all of that stuff, okay?
1: And with that, there's a lot of contradicting things on the internet about some of the stuff we talked about and some other things. If you have a question about, ooh, is this true or is this a myth, you, know, you can send email or I, uh, yeah. or email to Kira and I. And that's something we could talk about on one of the future podcasts. Yeah,
0: definitely. If you have some content for us so that we can do less work, go for it. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening to the Physio Gc Podcast. Stay healthy and we'll talk to you again soon.